Tiger fans. Welcome to part two of our Jackson State University Black History Series on the official Tiger Talk with the 1400 Club podcast. I am the Corey C. Be sure to download and subscribe to the podcast to be notified of every new episode. Apple Podcast users, rate and review the show. And everyone, follow Tiger Talk with the 1400 Club on Facebook and Tiger Talk 1400 on Instagram and Twitter. It all helps the cause, which is the I love, Jackson State University. And welcome back to another episode of Tiger Talk with the 1400 Club. It's your host, Neely. And of course, I am joined, as always, by the stat man, Charles Bishop. But you know, I don't know how many stats we're going to do on this episode, Chuck, because this is one of our Mm -hmm. special episodes. You know, Tiger Talk with the 1400 Club exists to uh, promote uh, JSU athletics and our student athletes and and uh, all the things that go along with that process. But with Black History Month, we decided to add in some special episodes and talk to some history makers associated with Jackson State. Uh, and so that's what this episode is going to be. This is going to be uh, uh, number two in that series. And Chuck, I'm I'm looking forward I'm to it. Well, how how are you today, Charles? Looking forward to this opportunity to talk to uh, another titan, if you will, uh, of the civil rights movement. Uh, and, and to bring them on Tiger Talk, uh, it is definitely going to be an honor. It is. It is. So why don't we just get to it? You know, uh, he's a man who needs no introduction. Uh, he's a statesman, a gentleman, a scholar, political scientist extraordinaire. And, and let me tell you this, Chuck. I don't know if you know this, and I don't know if our listeners know this, but there's only been one person in the history of the world that has served as mayor of the capital city of Jackson, Mississippi, and also served as president of Jackson State University. Only, <laughs> only one person has ever done that. Without, without further ado, let's welcome the Tiger Talk, Dr. Leslie Burrow McEnroe. Well, Dr. Brother, Mack, how you doing? Well, and I'm delighted to uh, be here today. Uh, absolutely, I'm doing well, doing well. Good deal. Always a pleasure to hear that distinguished <laughs> voice. Uh, and I can't wait to pick your brain on, on a few topics now. I don't know where where do we start, Chuck? You know this this rich history. We can go back to Walls, Mississippi, or Russ College. Uh, 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 so 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 so, Doc, why don't you just give us a little bit of that background? Then we'll get into right. some, some more well, questions. Well, you know, Tell I grew up yourself. as you pointed out in Walls. Uh, Walls is in DeSoto County, and I grew up in Walls. Actually, I spent time. Walls is very close to Memphis, so growing up, uh, my mother. At one point, moved to Memphis, so we spent a little time in Memphis, but primarily I grew up in Walls, went to elementary school in Walls and in Memphis, and graduated from high school in Walls uh, at a place called Delta Center High School. Uh, Now it's called Mm -hmm. Walls Elementary School, but I graduated from, from high school actually in 1960 and went off to Russ College in Holly Springs. Uh, where I spent four years and got involved in the uh, civil rights movement and uh, did things uh, that really I hadn't envisioned that I would ever do when I left Delta Center High School. Because when I went off to Russ College and got involved in the movement, uh, Charles mentioned uh, uh, the word Titan, and I really met some Titans of the civil rights movement when when I went to Russ College, because that's where... I was first introduced to Aaron Henry and Medgar Evers and Bob Moses and Fannie Lou Hamer and all these people that I have become 
associated with over the years. But uh, the Rush College experience was a great experience for me educationally uh, and and community-wise. So that was really like a total education at Rust. I owe uh, mm -hmm. so much of what I have ever done to uh, Rush College. That's why uh, I try to give back. And I think it's important for all yes, of sir. us who are graduates of HBCUs mm -hmm. to give back as often as we can. You know, our time, our talent, mm -hmm. our royalties, whatever we have, it's important that we that we give back. So Rush College uh, is important, was a pivotal point in my life. And, uh, and I always, again, try to give back. And I uh, participate in activities at Rust because Rust was able to help me when I was not able to help myself. So mm. it's an important mm. preach, preach. <laughs> Yes, yes, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, uh, you you mentioned some some iconic names as 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 Chuck put it and you put it, Titans in the Civil Rights uh, Movement and and your association specifically with with Fannie Lou Hamer and the Freedom Democratic Party. Talk to us about you know uh, the the events leading up to that convention and the works that took place when you guys okay. got back to Mississippi. Well, uh, you know, leading up to the Freedom Democratic Party, of course, you know, like good, like any good political scientist or historian, I need to start, I need to go back a few years before that. But let me just point out that the, uh, the period really when we formed uh, the college chapter of NAACP at Rust back in 1962, mm is that when I became formally associated with uh, the NAACP as an organization, because growing up in Walls, we didn't have any youth chapter of the NAACP. In fact, I don't recall there even being a DeSoto County chapter of the NAACP because it was so dangerous uh, back then in the 50s and the 60s. But so I met Meg Everest. But I really, I met Aaron Henry before I met McEvers. And I met Aaron Henry uh, through his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law was a man by the name of Reverend uh, Merrill Winston Lindsay. And Reverend Lindsay taught religion at Rust. And Lindsay and Henry uh, married two sisters. So uh, Lindsay invited Aaron Henry to the campus on more than one occasion, of course, you know, at, at that time, by 1962, Aaron Henry was the statewide president of the NAACP. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'd like to uh, mm. point that out because in 1962, Reverend Lindsay ran for the U.S. Congress in the 2nd Congressional District, and I got involved in that campaign as a student at Rust. And, uh, but Henry... Uh, you know, got us involved in the Lindsay campaign. Of course, Reverend Lindsay got us involved in his campaign because I was taking the class from him at that at that particular time. But when we were installed as officers of the NAACP in 62, uh, Doc Henry invited uh, Matt Gavers to come to Harlem Springs to come to Rust and install us. So that's when I met uh, Matt Gavers. Mm -hmm. So you know, we wouldn't really have the Freedom Democratic Party uh, without the role that Mecca Evers played, without the role that Aaron Henry played. Mm. And so in 1963, 
Bob Moses had come to Mississippi back in 1961 as a part of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And you know from uh, Mississippi history that the SNCC uh, group started out in Macomb, Mississippi in 61, and Bob Moses mm -hmm. came and was embraced by Medgar Evers and by Aaron Henry in 1962. Uh, they formed something called COFO, C-O-F-O, the Council of Federated Organizations. And COFO became the umbrella organization for all of the different civil rights organizations working in Mississippi at that time. And of course, we're talking about CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. We're talking about SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and the NAACP and SNCC. So all of four of the major civil rights organizations worked under this umbrella. And Bob Moses was sort of the day-to-day -day, uh, director. And uh, and Dave Dennis, of course, was sort of co-director with Bob Moses of this uh, COFO organization. So I'm saying all this to point out that all of this led up to the formation of the Freedom Democratic Party. And the, the mm -hmm. pivotal event in 1963, uh, Aaron Henry... Uh, ran for governor, and uh, Reverend Ed King ran for lieutenant uh, governor on something called uh, the Freedom Vote. It was a mock election. This was the statewide election in 1963 where Henry uh, was running for governor, Ed King for lieutenant governor. And, and in this mock election, uh, they held a mock election because Kofo, Bob Moses, and the group was, was saying to the rest of the country, because see, all the good white folk in Mississippi had said at that time that black folk had really no interest in politics. Mm. Black folk didn't want to vote mm. in Mississippi. Uh, so I let them vote. I mean, that was not their interest. So they held this statewide mm. election, this mock election in November of 1963 to demonstrate to the world, to America, that if given the opportunity, black folk would register and vote. And the mock election was held. At the time, of course, Aaron Henry was the statewide president of the NAACP. Reverend Ed King at that point was the chaplain at, at Tougaloo College. Uh, they ran and garnered about 88,000 votes. And that mock election told the world that the good white folk in Mississippi had been lying to the world <laughs> because black folk would register and vote if given an opportunity. And so that freedom vote campaign in 1963 led to the development of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. So uh, the idea uh, the MFDP would challenge the regular white segregated, lily-white Democratic Party in the state. And the Freedom Democratic Party would, was, the, was a parallel party to the regular white segregated party. And the idea is that we would challenge from the precinct level through uh, the state convention, we would challenge uh, the regular white party because uh, we were making the argument 
that the Freedom Democratic Party is really the legitimate party in Mississippi uh, because we were the integrated party. We were a party that was reaching out to everybody. We wanted all segments of society to be represented in our party. So we held precinct meetings. We did all the things that one should do or one does in order to uh, elect delegates to go to uh, the national convention. And so we went through that process. We went through the process of electing delegates at the precinct level. In fact, initially, when we formed a party, when they held a regular uh, state uh, party apparatus, uh, black folk tried to attend the precinct meetings of the regular party uh, in, in mm -hmm. several different locales throughout Mississippi, including Hines County. And of course, uh, they were rebuffed. There was in one or two instances where blacks were elected on the precinct level, uh, but that didn't go very far. So the process, of course, you know, in Mississippi, we have the precinct meetings and then the county meetings and then the, uh, then the regional meetings and then the state meeting. Uh, so in, we decided that since we could not attend and could not participate in the regular party meetings, uh, the parallel party was developed. And so we went through the process, selected a delegation of 68 delegates and alternates, and we went to Atlantic City. And of course, Atlantic City in August of 1964, it was there that Mrs. Hamer's famous testimony was aired throughout the nation. And that was really uh, Mrs. Hamer's introduction to America because her testimony, her riveting testimony, where she described how she had been evicted from the Marlowe Plantation in Sunflower County. And uh, of course, she talked about how uh, she had been, along with several other people, beaten in Winona, Mississippi in June of 1963. So she went through that testimony. She talked about, uh, you know, the conditions in Mississippi, the conditions in, in the rest of the American South. And her testimony was so riveting, riveting that, uh, you know, she really captured the imagination of yes. the country. So we became uh, headline news for a moment there in Atlantic City because of our challenge to the Lily White uh, segregated party from Mississippi. And of course, you know, the, the, in the final analysis, uh, they offered us a compromise. And the compromise mm -hmm. was, okay, we will offer you two seats at large and uh and the two delegates at large will be uh aaron henry and ed king and the rest of you will be seated as honored guests at the convention of course we objected uh we rejected the compromise and didn't accept that and uh, and but we came back to mississippi with the pledge is that we were going to support uh the democratic uh, nominee. And of course, the Democratic nominee was Lyndon Baines Johnson. So the Freedom mm -hmm. Democratic Party came back to Mississippi, uh, worked hard to get Johnson elected. Of course, you know, Johnson didn't carry Mississippi, but that was our effort to get involved in the Democratic Party politics because we wanted to demonstrate not only uh, to the Mississippians, but to the rest of the country uh, that we were the legitimate, bona fide, Democratic Party, and we should be recognized by the National Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, you know, four years later, a, a group that consisted of the MFDP and other elements of the Democratic Party, a group that was called the Lawless Democrats, went to the uh, National Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968 and was seated as the bona fide, legitimate Democratic Party in Mississippi. So that was that was my experience, you know, just out of, uh, in fact, I was still a student at Rush College. I graduated in May of 1964. I got involved in the Freedom Democratic Party. I was elected vice chair of the party at the young tender age of 23, went off to Atlantic City. And mm-hmm. I had all of that experience between 1960 and 1964. So you can imagine that that time frame really changed my world. This is a, a guy from a three-store town in North Mississippi who has been, not only had I been to Chicago a couple of times, I've been to Atlantic City. So I was, uh, sure. I, I was, I was, I was, I was living high. I tell you that. I had, let me, let me tell you this now, this is important. I had my first mixed drink in Atlantic City, New Jersey. <laughs> and the guy who told me the guy was named, the guy's name is Reggie Robertson. He was in SNCC. He said, Mike Lamore, I know you haven't been introduced to drinking but he said the safest mixed drink for you to have is a rum and coke. So I had my first rum and coke in Atlantic City, New Jersey, in July of 1964. Yeah. <laughs> That's you know, Doc, as as I listen to that, man, <laughs> one thing that I'm just struck by, and you and you and you touched on it. Uh, you know, you you were you you were 22, 23, 24 years old, and one one of the things that we try to do on Tiger Talk with the 1400 Club is it serves as that conduit, that bridge between generations uh, to, to make sure that folks understand, you know, what was taking place uh, in America, in Mississippi, on HBCU campuses, throughout the Delta, throughout the South, with young black people who are the same caliber of students that they are today. Mm. Uh, and, and so, you know, to hear that story and that wonderful history and you being a part of that, at the age range that we try to share that information with current students, it's just profound, brother. I appreciate you sharing that. No doubt about it. Thank you. Thank you very much. But I think it's important because, uh, of course, you well know that during this time frame that I'm talking about, that that the impetus, uh, that the driving forces in the civil rights movement really were the young yeah. people. You know, we were uh, college students at Jackson State and Tougaloo and Rust and Alcorn and all of these different colleges. Uh, we had a certain element of, 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 of participation. Now, it was not like a whole lot of us were on these campuses involved, but there were some of us on all of these campuses in spite of of the state-based conditions that people faced at Alcorn and Valley and Jackson State, there were still students involved in the movement on on those campuses too. Mm -hmm. And on the campus of Tougaloo and Rust where we had more academic freedom, you know, we were very much involved in public demonstrations, voter registration, all of these, uh, you know, these activities. So it it is important because Rust really served for me, as, as Jackson State and Tougaloo and Alcorn and Valley served as a training ground for so many of us who were involved in the, in the movement because a lot of these initial elected officials uh, in Mississippi, so many of them had participated at one point or another 
in the civil rights movement, and they were all young people. So, uh, you know, we had, of course, the Aaron Hymners of the world and the Medgar Evers of the world, but, you know, the driving forces were uh, the energy that came from the young people who were active participants in the movement. Dr. McElmore, let me, let me ask this question. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated this 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 time frame, especially in Mississippi history. Uh, it is extremely volatile. Uh, 1960 to 1964 when you're in college and I'm always struck by the resolve uh, especially of, of, of the students uh, during that time uh, when there are assassinations happening in Mississippi and I'm always curious to ask you know where does the resolve come from uh, to know that the, the, the violence could get to a point where it could end your life well, you know, uh, one of the concerns that, that my mother and my grandfather expressed about me when I got involved in the, uh, in the movement in Hollis Springs at Rust in Marshall County and, you know, northern Mississippi was they were concerned about my safety. Uh, but the, my grandfather, my mother's father, was actually the, the male role model in my life, and, and he was... Uh, committed to uh, the first-class citizenship. Although he lived in this town, he was recognized in the Black community as being one of the leaders, but he was not, uh, as I, let me just say, he was not political in the sense of at being an active participant uh, in any kind of voting activity, but uh, he encouraged me once I got involved. He encouraged me and said that he would be fully supportive of anything that, that I that I got engaged in. And if I, if I got in jail, he would get me out, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. my, my, my mother didn't quite speak in those terms, but she went along with her father because, you know, she she also was concerned about first-class citizenship. So, so, so that, was, uh, that was that element, I think, in all of the, most of the families of the young people that, that was involved in the movement. And let me just go back very quickly and point out that we were brave in the 60s, but I want y'all to think about the bravery of people like Aaron Henry and Mecca Evers and C.C. Bryant and E.W. Steptoe and Amzie Moore, all of these people who were veterans of World War II. Because really, Mm -hmm. when when we really think about Mississippi history Mm -hmm. and the history of the South, uh, in terms of civil rights, it was the veterans that came home from the army, from the war, after World War II. Uh, most of them, some of them had not graduated high school. Some had, you know, in the case of Medgar Evers, uh, he went to Alcorn, graduated high school, and stayed there and graduated from college. But, you know, the World War II vets were really the people that helped to lay the foundation in Mississippi and Louisiana and South Carolina, Arkansas, all of these places uh, in the American South, uh, these vets were the people that paved the way because they were the ones who were brave enough to attempt to register to vote in these places because, you know, uh, Reverend Lee uh, got killed in Belzoni. You know, we got so, so many people uh, died names uh, and nameless individuals who t- attempted to register to vote, you know, on the courthouse 
square lawn uh, in Bell's only Reverend Lee was shot, you know, for attempting to register mm. to vote. And uh, we know that at the beginning of Freedom Summer in 1964, uh, that the three young civil rights workers were killed in Neshoba County. So death was all around us. But on the other hand, we were highly motivated because uh, first-class citizenship was important. I remember when we first started to knock on doors in Holly Springs in 1961 to try to get people to register to vote, part of what uh, we had been told to point out that you are not a first-class citizen unless you are a registered voter. So we would go from house to house in Holly Springs, knock on doors. We didn't have to know what we were doing, but we were encouraging people to register to vote and we would take them to the county courthouse. And of course, most of, most of them did not get registered because they had to fill out, uh, had to go through that literacy test, which asked you to interpret a section of the Mississippi Constitution to the satisfaction of the register. And of course, you had to pay uh, poll tax two consecutive years in order to vote. It was all those difficulties. But the point I'm really trying to make is, is that we knew as students that citizenship was important. And uh, so voting was important. I mean, voting was the hallmark of, 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 of citizenship. So we are fighting uh, this battle over voting today uh, because uh, the powers that be clearly understand, uh, clearly understand the importance of voting. And we live in a state that is 38% black. And so we have to deal with this battle, this struggle every day. I mean, obviously things have changed. We have the, the highest percentage or the highest number, I think, of black elected officials in any state in the union. But also we have the largest uh, percentage of blacks in the population. And also we don't have any statewide black elected officials. So I, the point I'm really trying to make is that voting is precious sure. and voting is something uh, that people obviously are willing to struggle and die for. And just think about it. Just think about it. Medgar Evers and the three civil rights, uh, 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 civil rights workers and the uh, countless other people uh, that lost their lives, they lost their lives primarily around the right to vote. Just, just think about it. I mean, Medgar Evers died in, in his driveway because he was encouraging and help, helping black people register to vote in Jackson and the rest of the state of Mississippi. And what Mega Evers did between 1954, when he became the first permanent field secretary of the NAACP, and his death in June of 1963 was phenomenal. He developed, mm -hmm. uh, brothers, he developed a network of NAACP chapters mm. and relationships that when SNCC and CORE and SDLC came to town, they took advantage of that network that Mega Evers had developed because the very foundation of COFO was built upon the work of Mega Evers. And just think now that Mega and Murley and all of the people associated with the NAACP in all of these communities where it was, where it was difficult, where it was absolutely uh, life and death 
to, to even have a membership, not to think about being president or an officer in the NAACP because, you know, there were few above ground NAACP chapters in Mississippi, mm. you know, the major towns and cities, but in small places like Walls and Tunica and Mount Bayou and places like that, you know, we didn't know who the NAACP president was because he or she was underground. Sure. So so this, this right to vote piece is just so important. I, you know, I I really get upset when when I talk with people and they say to me, well, I'm not going to vote. I don't have an interest in this issue. And I think about all of the unnamed heroes and sheroes that sacrifice their lives for us to vote. And on election day, we don't vote. So young people, mm. I think this Black Lives Matter movement, I think they have a right the right point in mind because we need to be involved and we really need to encourage our young people to 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 stay involved to get involved because we have to make a difference i mean our time is right now in spite of what is going on in the country we must press on because voting is just absolutely vital and, and that and that you know brings me to my next question in terms of of you being a civil rights veteran and, and what we see going on in the country now, um, there's a, a sort of a direct correlation uh, from your work to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement now. Um, and I, I've always wanted to ask a civil rights veteran this in terms of looking at uh, the socio-political climate now. Uh, are there a lot of similarities to when you were working hand-in-hand with Fannie Lou Hamer and Bob Moses and, and Aaron Henry? Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, fundamentally, one of the things that I learned uh, at Rush College, and I think it really sort of started in high school. If I keep thinking about it, maybe it goes back uh, to the Walls Chapel CME Church here in Walls. But, you know, being being a part of an organization, uh, you know, the ability to uh, to organize. One of the things that I remember that I did before I went off to college in Rust in 1960, uh, I uh, organized our annual Men's Day program at, at my church. I was I was chair of the Men's Day Committee as a high school senior. And during my high school senior year at Delta Center, I was president of the student council. And we led uh, a boycott of classes at my high school before I went to Rust uh, because uh, the principal of the school wanted to assign four faculty advisors to the student council, and we objected because we didn't really need that many faculty advisors because uh, he wanted the faculty advisors to try to control our activities, and and we didn't and we didn't really like that. And we are in a town really where you had nothing to integrate. I mean, there was no public facilities to integrate. There was no bus station. That there, there was no. Uh, drugstore. I mean, that was nothing integrated, but uh, I guess he didn't want us to even think about uh, a march or anything like that. But so we, so we boycotted classes because we didn't, uh, we had too many uh, faculty advisors on the student council. Uh, we also uh, boycotted classes because at that point we didn't have any Negro history books in the library. This was a brand new school in Walls. And our third reason for boycotting classes was that we didn't like the food in the cafeteria. So, you know, we, we did those things. 
And, and the point, point that I'm trying to make here is that even before I got to Russ College, I had some sense of how to organize, some sense of organization. And I think the similarities between what uh, SNCC and what the NAACP and what COFO did in Mississippi in the 60s in the Black Lives Matter movement is, is the organizational piece of it, a piece of it, because okay. clearly uh, the SNCC and CORE and SCL people, young people really knew how to organize. And when uh, SNCC went to Macomb in 1961 and started what has become known as the Macomb Project, uh, it was organized around uh, voter registration, voter education. And of course, uh, there was some integration protest around the segregation of the bus station and the lunch counters there. But, but the basic rationale was getting people registered to vote. And of course, the SNCC got the, the, the high school students involved in Macomb, got them involved in the movement, got the young people involved in the movement. And so you had high school students, you had college students involved in the 60s, and now you have the Black Lives Matter students involved, and primarily these, these are college students and high school students. But of course, one of the fundamental differences is now is that the Black Lives Matter movement really represents the most integrated movement that we've had. I mean, mm. during the high school rights movement, we never had this level of white people and other people of color involved in the movement. And, but, but, but the linchpin really is how well they are organized and how well they are on top of the issues. And of course, now with the technology, it's even easier to organize. Uh, and with mm -hmm. the technology, you can, you can set up a meeting in a matter of minutes, uh, a couple of hours. You can have people to meet you on the, on the corner at, at, in, in 30 minutes, and you can get that out to hundreds of people. We couldn't do that in the 60s, but but the basic notion of organization, organizing around issues is something that we were able to do. And of course, our primary issue was voter education and integration of facilities in the 60s uh, and some, some issues dealing with economic development. But now with the wide range of issues that people can address and are addressing, uh, they can do it organizationally. So I think the organizational piece is one common denominator that is very important. It was very important in the 60s. It is, it's, in, it's very important now, and it would, be, it would be very important in the future, too. But so organization is really, you know, one of the key elements, sure. quite frankly. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, Doc, you know, one thing you touched on there before before I pivot to a, another section that we want to get to with you, when you talked about uh, – you know, that communication piece and organ as it relates to organization and what what you couldn't do in the 60s because of a lack of technology, so to speak, uh, you know, to our listeners out there. You know, Dr. Mack and I uh, served on the Jackson City Council for for a window of time together. And, and and I often think, Doc, that, you know, when you and I would go live for a press conference, there had to be a van that would pull up, you know, and, and they would lift this gigantic antenna up into the sky just for us to go live at six o'clock, you know, for a press conference. Now you can reach the world from your phone and go live. And, and so with the, with the young people having this technology at their fingertips, uh, that organization piece and learning how to use that technology to communicate that message, uh, you know, it, it is, it is a game changer to, to, to organization and move the needle. Uh, but one, one thing I want to ask you, doc, and you know, you talked about, uh, you know, veterans coming home, 
and becoming those veterans of the civil rights movement and the boots on the ground analogy with the work that you were doing. I want to I want to transition uh, to boots off the ground. Uh, but particularly as it relates to training on HBCU campuses. Uh, you know, one of your uh, uh, fingerprints that's long lasting, standing the test of time, is with the Jackson State uh, Political Science Department. Uh, and, and so talk to us about your work there, the importance of political science being taught to young people in a classroom setting as they prepare to go into the world. Well, uh, thank you. The uh, one of the happiest periods in my entire life was obviously uh, spent at Jackson State. I was there a long time, so I, I had a lot of ups and some downs, but more ups than downs. Uh, when I came to Jackson State in uh, July of 1971, fresh out of a postdoc at Johns Hopkins, uh, I was a member of the History and Political Science Department. Mm -hmm. And during the course of that year, the 71-72 academic year, uh, Dr. Peoples and Dr. Esther Smith had promised uh, that they were going to form a separate political science department. Uh, so I remember having, uh, a couple of years ago, a conversation with uh, Dr. John Peoples and uh, <laughs> and Dr. Peoples pointed out, because uh, I, I listed uh, on my resume, and I still do, and it's true from my perspective uh, that I was the founding chair of the Political Science Department of Jackson State, which is true. Now, Dr. Peoples pointed out, and he's, he's also correct, he said, well, so you were the founding chair, but uh, the idea of coming up with a separate political science department and appointing you chair was my idea. <laughs> he, said, he said, now, he said, I tell you something that you did do that I didn't know anything about is that you started that public administration program. He said, now, you were the founding uh, director of the public administration program because he said, you know, uh, uh, Leslie, I didn't know anything about public administration, so I'll give you that. But politically, <laughs> you know, I said, okay, Dr. people. <laughs> That's okay. I agree with you. Okay. Yeah, anyway, yeah. I still listed on my resume that I'm the founding chair of the Department <laughs> of Political Science at Jackson State. But that was that was a you know a rare opportunity because just think in in 1972 in the fall of 72 I'm at that point I'm 32 years old and I'm a chair of the department. So we uh, cobbled together some of us who had been a part of history and political science and formed the political science. Of faculty. Uh, and it was clearly one of the most exciting periods of my academic life and in, in my professional life. And I had uh, gotten out of graduate school with a degree in government or political science from UMass in 1971, 1970, and went off to Johns Hopkins and spent a year at Johns Hopkins, then came to Jackson State. And, uh, and also I had become one of the founding members of an organization called the National Conference of Black Political Scientists mm -hmm. that was mm -hmm. uh, started on the campus, founded on the campus of Southern University in Baton Rouge uh, by a woman by the name of Jewel Prestige, who was chair of the political science department at Southern. And Dr. Prestige had hired me uh, when I obtained my master's degree from Atlanta University 
1965. When I graduated from Rust, I went to AU, got a master's degree in political science, and I taught at Southern for a year before I went back to graduate school at, uh, at UMass. And uh, so we founded that organization, uh, NCOPS, the National Conference of Black Political Scientists, and with the idea is that we would teach political science from a black perspective. Mm. And uh, so I, I had all of these ideas in my head. So I'm, I'm still learning. I'm reading. I mean, I just got my de degree a couple of years before that, but it was exciting. And then we had uh, and still have at Jackson State some of the brightest students in America. And uh, we had some, I, I, well, you know, I don't want to get in trouble, but we really had some very, very bright students and, and they worked very hard. Uh, we had a good faculty that we had cobbled together. Uh, we worked extremely hard uh, pulling together a political science a curriculum. And so over the years, immediately, I mean, you know, Allie Mack joined the faculty, uh, mm -hmm. Mary Coleman joined the faculty, Charles Holmes was already on the faculty, Charles left and went off to North Carolina Central and got a law degree and came back and still taught political science. So over the course of the first decade, uh, we developed uh, a solid curriculum in political science. Uh, we uh, began to send students to graduate school and to law school. And of course, we, en we ended up sending more students to law school than graduate school. But at one point, uh, in fact, the first decade or so, uh, political science and biology on the Jackson State campus, uh, these two departments were sending more students to graduate school than any other departments on the campus. John Usadema was chair of the biology department, and I was chair of political science. And we worked very hard to get students in graduate school, to get internships, uh, set up in internships. And then uh, we started uh, working with black elected officials. We started training programs for black elected officials. Uh, we uh, developed uh, 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 mentorship internships for our students, not only in Jackson, but, but throughout the country. We encouraged students to go all over the country. You know, we just really uh, made the political science department at Jackson State a national department. We, we built a solid department. And throughout the years, of course, we attracted other, other faculty members. And I think even today, one of the hallmarks of the political science department of Jackson State is that we still, they still work with students to get students into graduate school and mm -hmm. into law school. And uh, you can go any place in the country and uh, you can find uh, the, the trademark of a Jackson State political science graduates, because some of the leading departments in the country, they are Jackson State students. And of course, uh, we encourage Jackson State students to go to HBCUs, but they go all over. And mm -hmm. we are pleased with that. And then, of course, you know, a number of people who are, are serving in public life or have served in public life in Mississippi came through the Jackson State Political Science Department. A lot of the, uh, some of the legislators and county supervisors and and people who are on the city councils and all these towns and communities, a number of them were political science majors. They came through Jackson State's political science department. So we are very proud of the products that we have helped to produce. And a lot of the leading lawyers, 
uh, judges uh, in Mississippi and other places throughout the South are, are political science graduates. So uh, we have a we have a reputation that we work very hard uh, to uh, produce and work with uh, some very, very bright students. And I think we were very fortunate. We have been very fortunate, as I pointed out earlier, to attract some of the brightest students in the country have come through Jackson State. And of course, a number of those students have been political science majors, excuse me, have been political science majors and are still coming to Jackson State because of political science. And we started uh, the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute where we work with uh, teachers and students around civil rights issues. Uh, so we were just innovative. I, I mean, we were innovative. We wrote a lot of proposals uh, to fund students to go to graduate school, to fund faculty members. And in, in recent years, I have worked with uh, Charles Holmes to establish a scholarship in the political science department in the name of Charles Holmes. I work with uh, the wife of the late Isaiah Madison, who was the first lawyer uh, that filed the Ayers case. Uh, Isaiah Madison was my high school classmate. We established a scholarship in the political science department in his honor and his name. We established a, a scholarship in the political science department in the name of Fannie Lou Hamer. And the most recent uh, thing that I was a participant in, we established and we just endowed uh, the Fannie Lou Hamer lecture series. Uh, so uh, all of this is, all of these uh, scholarships are designed uh, for political science students. And, uh, and, and we are very proud of the fact that we have named scholarships now in honor of Isaiah Madison and Charles Holmes and the two in, in honor of Fannie Lou Hamer. And all of that has been a part of the political science department because uh, we still feel very strongly uh, that political science is a pivotal discipline and that young people ought to study political science. And uh, so we want to make it possible. So when people come to Jackson State, uh, they can apply for one of those scholarships at Jackson State to study political science. Well, Dr. McElroy, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, especially about the, the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute, uh, what were the, the, the aims uh, and the goals that you I wanted to create uh, in, in, in this phenomenal uh, research area with, with the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute, uh, because uh, when you take a look at Jackson State, especially with regards to uh, where it is within the, the pantheon of, of Mississippi history, uh, how important is it to continue the study of, 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 of Mississippi politics and politics in general? Well, I think it's I think it's crucial. I think it's very important, and one of the reasons that we established the uh, Fannie Lou Hamer uh, Institute was to uh, look at and examine uh, the issues of citizenship and democracy through the eyes of the civil rights movement. So, so we we started out with the notion that citizenship, as I pointed out earlier to to you all. Citizenship is so important. Voting is so, is so important. So uh, we would not be where we are as a nation uh, without the work of the civil rights movement, going back to the vets that I talked about from World War II up until the day. So as a social movement, the civil rights movement clearly was an important phenomenon in the life 
of this country. It helped to change this country. And uh, we have struggles now, but just think if we had not had that social movement, we would be further behind the eighth ball. So the civil rights movement was important, is important. Uh, so the Fannie Lou Institute was designed uh, to examine the issues of citizenship and democracy, but using uh, the lens, the eyes of the civil rights movement as a way to examine uh, these particular issues. But because the civil rights movement really helped to redefine democracy. The civil rights movement helped to redefine democracy. Just think, uh, 30 years ago, America was a different country. I mean, just think that that recently uh, the fight in Washington, the rebellion, the insurrection was over people uh, wanting to do something negatively about democracy. You know, uh, the idea is that people wanted to change democracy in a way to fit a certain class of people. You know, the civil rights movement expanded democracy. The civil rights movement redefined democracy in a way where you have greater participation. So the civil rights movement really was about uh, democracy is an ongoing project. Democracy is an evolving project. And democracy as an evolving project, it has to have the energy. It has to have the participation of the citizens, Mm -hmm. government of, for, and by the people. So if you don't have active participation by the citizens, then you you don't evolve it. I mean, it's an evolving project. And Mm -hmm. the civil rights movement really helped to speed it up. But just think, when I went off to college in 1960, uh, about 5.6% of the black population in Mississippi was registered to vote. We changed that. Mm. But the evolution, the the evolvement of democracy over time, the participation of people. So again, that's why it is important to have this level of participation because we knew that if we could use examples from the civil rights movement and we could use characters from the civil rights movement to talk about the meaning of citizenship, the meaning of democracy. And Jackson State has a role to play. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have the Ham Institute at Jackson State anymore. But on the other hand, there's the Margaret Walker Center that is doing some of the things that uh, the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute was able to do. But, But my point is this is that there is a profound need for ongoing uh, discussions around citizenship, around democracy, because democracy is precious. And that's why that rebellion occurred in Washington in January, because people understand that this democracy is precious. And we have been fighting this battle around the issues of participation since 1619. And if we look at sort of modern American history, and if we look at Reconstruction, at Reconstruction from 1865 to, to 1877, essentially, you know, when Black people had a greater role to play for the first time, Black men were registered voters, elected officials. So I, I want you to think that, you know, it's about democracy and it's about participation. And there are people who wish to limit 
the participation of, of black and brown people and people of color in this democracy, because it means that you have power, is that you can make decisions. So mm -hmm. it's important for us to be a part of the decision-making process. So any college or university worth its salt would have an element where there is an ongoing, ongoing discussion and conversation about citizenship and about democracy and about participation. So I would encourage not only my Jackson State, but my Ruff College and Tougaloo and all of these institutions to make sure that we forever have a discussion about the meaning of democracy and have active participants of our alumni in every aspect of the American citizenship story. Because wherever we are, whether we live in Mississippi or California, it doesn't matter. If you are a Jackson State graduate, you ought to be involved in the life of that community. So I encourage young people because I know that one of the pivotal roles that any decent political science department would play or history department or sociology department, but this idea of citizenship, this idea of looking at ways that we can expand and continue to redefine democracy is important because we need to have greater participation by all of us mm -hmm. in this country, a country that we have to build, that our ancestors have to build. And I tell people often that I'm not going anyplace. I'm back in the <laughs> because I want to make sure that we have democracy in all yes, of sir. these places. You know, Charles Bishop, when we uh, got together and noodled around this idea uh, along the landscape of that Jackson State was much bigger than sports, and, and sports is important to us. This is the reason this podcast started. But we started kicking around ideas of, man, there's so many other stories to be told. And, and Chuck, this is the story told today is exactly what yes, we had in yes, mind. Yes, indeed. Uh, this, this has been uh, wonderful information you know, bridging former generations all the way up to the current need and that the struggle in the marathon continues. And, and Dr. McLemore, we, we didn't even get to presidency of Jackson right. state days. And, and <laughs> so we, we, we gotta have you back on uh, at some we'll, point. We'll, we'll, do a, we'll do a part two at yes, some sir. point. Okay. We have to, bro, brother, we have to, because, because this information that you laid on us for this episode, uh, it is the reason we exist. You know, we're trying to put information out there that lets people know that Jackson State is much bigger than right now, much bigger than you or any individual, that it goes back to 1877 and it's going to keep going to 3077 and beyond. And the stories that you were able to tell us and articulate the reasons why that they are still important. I can't thank you enough uh, for being with us for this episode, man. And we just say God bless you and continue the good work and uh, uh you know, you got two friends at Tiger Talk to the 1400 Club. And, man, we, we, we're just elated that you were with us today. Thank you very much for asking me to come. Thank you very Thank much. You so much, Dr. McElmore. Really appreciate yes, it. Okay. All right. I tell you what, listeners, on behalf of my right-hand man, he's normally saying it about me, the stat man, Charles Bishop, our producer, the super dope producer, Corey C. We want to thank you for listening to Tiger Talk with the 1400 Club, and we'll catch you on the next episode.